What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and mourn the death of George Floyd of Minneapolis, Minnesota, a 46-year-old father of two and friend to many. He died while in police custody May 25, 2020, when Derek Chauvin forcefully kept his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, while Floyd begged for his life and echoed the pained and harrowing phrase Eric Garner also spoke before he died, I can't breathe. This comes off the heels of many more targeted deaths of African-Americans at the hands of the police, including Breonna Taylor in Louisville. And just two days after Floyd's murder, Tony McDade, a black trans man, was killed by police in Tallahassee, Florida. The protests that have erupted have come with more police violence and repression. We want to send our sincere condolences to family and friends of George Floyd, to all of those grieving, especially in African-American communities, to all of you. Tired, worried, sad, horrified, angry, and scared. We send you our energy and love to keep fighting the good fight. Welcome to This Week in Burn It All Down. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by all of my beloved co-hosts, Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, an ideologue of the toxic femininity charge, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University, Jessica Luther, Baker, PhD, and author of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back in Austin, Texas, and the unsinkable whip smart Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter and founder of the amazing newsletter on women's sports, Power Plays. On this week's show, we'll discuss the anti trans athlete ruling in Connecticut athlete activism in the wake of George Floyd's murder. On this show, we've been following consistent attacks on the trans athlete communities, especially in schools. And this week, there was an important ruling in Connecticut. Jessica, can you walk us through this? Sure. So the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights under Betsy DeVos has determined that allowing transgender girls to compete as girls violates Title IX. This is bullshit. But before we dig into that specifically, I want to remind everyone that Title IX is a federal statute that passed in 1972, and it says that the federal government will not fund any educational institution that discriminates based on sex. This is because equal access to education, including in sports, is a civil right in this country. Under Title IX, the federal government, if it determines that an educational institution is discriminating based on sex, can withhold funding. In this case, DeVos's Department of Ed has told the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference, the CIAC, and the Glastonbury School Board that their policy allowing transgender athletes to compete in their actual gender category is discriminatory. Of course, this is only about female athletes because our entire idea of athletes is sexist. I talked to Katie Barnes about this in episode 95. Katie said to me in that interview, quote, culturally speaking, we have an unofficial hierarchy that we use to talk about athletes, and it's as follows. So you have male athletes at the top, followed by average male athletes, followed by below average male athletes, and then elite female athletes. 
So there's this assumption that any person who is assigned male at birth will be able to outperform athletically any person who is assigned female at birth. Okay. So then, of course, because of this, the focus is only on female athletes. And the DOE found that Connecticut's inclusive policy, quote, denied female student athletes athletic benefits and opportunities, including advancing to the finals and events, higher level competitions, awards, medals, recognition, and the possibility of greater visibility to colleges and other benefits. This is bullshit because the people who discriminate and do harm to female athletes are almost exclusively white cis men. And that's where our energy should be directed, not at trans girls. We are talking about children. My evidence for this is all of sports history. Well, there's another, of course. This case was funded by the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian organization. They filed complaints on behalf of three high school students contending that trans students have an unfair advantage and that a trans girl winning a race over these other girls which is not a given, by the way, would hurt these cis girls in their college recruiting and possible scholarship opportunities. And I think what hurts their possible scholarship opportunities is actually the unequal money in collegiate sports and how it favors men's sports. But I mean, apparently none of that matters. The CIAC has 20 days to resolve the violation or else the DOE might suspend, terminate, or refuse to give funding to the association and many of its school districts. The last thing I'll say is that Katie did a great piece in 2018 for ESPN titled, They Are the Champions in the Face of Fear and Anger, Two Young Transgender Athletes Fight to Compete in the Ways in the Sports They Love. Katie interviewed the executive director of the CIAC who told them, quote, Our association is in a place where we don't look at fairness in terms of winning and losing. It's more about opportunity and access. We want to be fair there first. It's not easy to be a high school student to begin with. Growing up is tough. To be a transgender adolescent is an extra challenge. This is about life, not winning and losing in sports. If we could all be supportive, that's far more important. I'm not surprised that DeVos's Department of Ed doesn't view transgender participation in the same way as the CIAC, but I'm pretty fucking angry about it. Oof. Linz. Yeah, thank you for that, Jess. Um, I just wanted to say that I got to meet um, Terry Miller and Andrea Yearwood, um, the two trans uh, female runners who were at the kind of the heart of this lawsuit in Connecticut. I got to meet them at the Athlete Ally Awards last November where they were honored. And something that sticks out to me that, that they said beyond just their, you know, grace and beauty and I mean, they're so much more poised than I was in high school. Like they were giving a big speech in front of Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris and just were like super chill about it <laughs> was that they said that it, that this hate was mainly being fueled by the parents of their competitors, not the competitors themselves. And it just was a reminder to me about how much hate is learned and passed down. And I've thought about that so many times since they they told that to me. Now, I'm not saying that all of their, you know, classmates are angels or anything. But, you know, from the start, their parents were the ones to tell them that this was wrong. Their parents were the ones to really be leading this fight against um, Title IX. Yeah. And now I'm sure some of the their competitors have, you know, taken it up as their own. But goodness, 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 uh, hate is is taught. 
And I would just like to mention that while we're in the midst of a global pandemic and there's tons of austerity measures, the office of Betsy DeVos has also pursued doing things like calling for the quote unquote flexibility of spending for disabilities and special education, meaning they can spend it in other ways. They've also uh, organized different relief and aid packages to go to private schools, often right-wing Christian schools that are bigoted towards, you know, trans students in general, <laughs> much less, you know, a whole whole series of other uh, racist and homophobic educational curriculum. So I feel like this is this is part of this, you know, just much larger project. Shireen? Yeah, I just wanted to make a really quick point and sort of along the lines of what Lindsay was saying was that for me, it really pained me to see that two young women, cishet young women are attacking two young trans women in what I perceived as a misguided attempt to advocate for girls in sport and using girls in sport, quote unquote, as a shield for this type of transphobia. I mean, the internalized misogyny is is, is terrible. I, it was just hard because, I, you know, I think about a good place in the world and I think about women being this collective that help each other and move along and that our struggles are so inherently connected. We know this at the intersections. We know that as people who talk about it within sport, it's just very, it's very hard to see. And I just wanted to quickly shout out um, Chase Strangio and and who's who's been very public about fighting this and constantly, you know, tweeting about it and sharing that there is a commitment to legally fight this decision. Amira? Yeah, I would echo that point. I can't remember when I burned it, but specifically the the parents in in Connecticut are are awful in terms of the way they're using their kids as pawns. I just want to again constantly remind people that we're talking about this on a athletic an athletic context, obviously because that's what we do, but also because that's being used as one of the areas to legislate people out of existence or attempt to. It's the same with bathrooms. Bathrooms and tracks are not, are being used as these sites to wage large scale battles that are impacting the livelihoods and the very life and death matters that um, people in the trans community are facing. And so as we're having this discussion, um, you heard Brenda at the top of the show lift up the name of Tony Dade, uh, Tony McDade, who was killed in a officer-involved shooting, whatever they call it. He was a Gemini. He was loving. His family said he had an infectious laugh and such joy. And he joins a list, a long list of trans people who have been killed, particularly at the hand of police, but also just by general violence, disproportionately Black trans women, but also, as we can see with Tony's case, Black trans men and other trans people of color are disproportionately bearing the brunt and the weight of this violence. So these legislations, these activities in bathrooms and in and in sports are part of a much larger uh, pandemic of a different kind. And I think that is why all of this is so important to get right, because people are literally dying. And when you make laws to legislate people out of existence, it makes it easier to dehumanize and to perpetrate violence against those people. In the days following the death of George Floyd, the United States has erupted 
in a protest movement that is part of a very long trajectory. We wanted to discuss some of the ways in which athletes have used their platform, both leading up to this and during this moment. Shireen? Thank you, Brenda. So athlete activism was a relatively new buzzword, quote unquote, that started to appear more and more after Colin Kaepernick took a knee. But the reality is, is that Black athletes have been speaking up for a very long time. And they're not just been speaking out. And we've learned about so much about this from our own beloved Dr. Davis. But it's not only because of activism, which is in itself an incredible amount of work. It is literally protesting, speaking, writing, donating, using their platforms to protest anti-Black violence, and specifically brutal police violence. And athletes have often been told that they're entertainers. But that's not what it is. Their bodies are literally used to make money for their white, powerful men at the top. And just for a second, we need to examine the term athlete activist. I mean, that is critical because no other other marginalized group is forced to play and pray publicly for their humanity. So in that vein, we've seen a few folks speak up, speak out. But what is needed is voices in small boardrooms and among decision makers. And as a UConn women's basketball player, Kristen Williams tweeted on Saturday, as a black collegiate athlete, it is concerning that I have not seen any universities use their platform on social media to post anything concerning the social justice that's happening in America right now. I mean, this is a situation where a young black woman can't focus on ball, can't focus on training because she's thinking about the existence and the survival of black people. I think that there's a couple of things that have really moved me and the way that moved in, in a harrowing way, particularly those in sports media and Black journalists and Black folks out there in communities that are doing the work and doing more of the work. I just wanted to actually say that I read something by my friend and friend of the show, Musa Kwanga. He's a sports writer in the UK. And I'm just going to take a little bit of what he said and share it with you. And he was talking about doing an interview on this very subject. And he says, quote, the interview starts seemingly within the same minute it ends. I don't get to say anything I want, but I don't mind because the most important thing is that my anger was clear when I said it. 20 minutes after the interview, I'm still shivering gently as I have stepped from a heated swimming pool in the late autumn air, hoping I have either found the right words or the barely restrained emotion that it will need to encourage non-Black people to action. I hope I have found the appropriate package for Black suffering. The cost is too great if I and countless others have not. Those words really hit me, and I thought about the emotional, physical, and psychological toil of athletes, sports writers, and folks in all spaces, art, science, business, academia. It's fucking exhausting. In this segment, we will talk about various things and athletes and way to support. But the first thing I need to say is to non-Black folks, especially those who identify as people of color, is pull the fuck up. So the first sort of segment of this segment, the sub-segment, has to do with a conversation we were having on Slack actually about how we think about these recent activities, protests, movements uh, connected to sports but beyond them too. Does this somehow feel different than the many, many, many other instances of protest against police brutality and and, and its racist core, Lindsay? Yeah, I will say, as you know, I was covering the athlete activism and especially 
from female athletes very, very closely back um, as a reporter in 2015 and 2016 um, and have since then. And I will say it used to be that kind of every single statement could um, deserved a little news story of its own because it was that big of a deal. Do you know what I mean? Like every, anyone who spoke out, it was, it was rare enough for a little bit that it would, you know, that one statement would be newsworthy. And I, I can just say that the volume this time doesn't, you know, there's too much to keep up with, which is a good thing. I think there are multiple reasons for that. You know, the pandemic, the fact that we're all home, the fact that we're all watching, the fact that there are no sports, the fact that there are no distractions. I think there are some just the way the news worked this week with seeing the white power that an Amy Cooper showed on Monday when she was yelling at that video. And then to have that concurrently put, you know, next to the death of George Floyd. I think the the fact that the entire Floyd thing was was caught on tape. The fact that it was just the brutality of it. All of these are brutal, obviously, but there wasn't room in this conversation for the the blame game that usually goes on in these conversations. So we got to kind of the conversation cut straight to a further point along than it had with, in mainstream media at least, than it had with you know, than it did quickly with Mike, Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin. I think the work that activists have been doing set us up to be farther along in that conversation too. But at the same time, it feels like nothing has changed and that things are only getting worse. So, yeah. Shireen? Yeah, I don't think it's progress. I think it's undeniable. And I don't think things have changed. I think that the level of systemic brutality is consistent. And we've seen that. It's been documented. And enragingly, the videos that were being shared, and for God's sake, do not share videos and photographs of Black trauma. I cannot say that enough. Do not do that. But it almost seems like the more that it's shared, the more people believe. And examine yourself. If you need to share that to literally prop up the idea that Black Lives Matter, like something's wrong with you. And I just, I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical. I live in a city that would protest. I live in Toronto. And just the other day, Regis Korczynski Pake fell off a balcony in police presence. And they're still investigating. And reporters can't even report accurately because they're just trying to be so careful. So there's friends of mine who are journalists that are trying, that are so careful in what they're trying to say because they don't know everything yet. But there's the death of a Black woman and there's questions and there's anger. And this is amidst everything. And also, just to reiterate, up here in Canada, it's not like these systems of white supremacy do not exist. They have existed for a very long time. In the same way, we don't have like the population numbers, obviously, but it's not as if this type of racism stops at the border. It's it's literally embedded. And again, I don't think it's I don't think I would say it was progress, because if there was progress, we wouldn't be doing this. Every I think I saw a tweet that not a day went by in 2019 that police didn't kill somebody. There wasn't a day in a month that it didn't happen. Like I don't know what kind of progress we're looking for, but this just it ain't it. Mira. Yeah, we saw Alton Sterling get choked out on camera and say the same damn words. This is not progress. It's not even different. 
as long as the list of names is getting, those are the names we know. Without video cameras, we've missed many others. And that's, there is an interest convergence that creates situations where it feels like a powder keg about to explode. And I think Brendan gestured to some of these when we talked about the political climate and the various actors kind of taking to the streets. There's a lot happening here. But I think one of the ways you can see, you can take the temperature, is that there's so many brands and people who've come out with vague gesturing statements. Netflix straight up said like Black Lives Matter, Nike, Oreo. When corporations can seize on something and say, you know, for once, don't do it. We can all be the change, et cetera, et cetera. I think it points to a very extreme interest convergence where for whatever reason, this is this is the moment that will be an uptick. It takes me back to the NFL to when that one week when 45 insulted the league generally, and all of a sudden everybody was kneeling. Motherfucking Jerry Jones was kneeling. And people were like, oh my goodness, we've never seen this before. Is this progress? This is significant? No. That was about ego. That was about money. It aligned briefly with a gesture that was about police brutality, but that's not what it was about. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. There is something very real ruminating from city to city. And that is building on a historical movement that is always, always, always trying to march to a better day. But the responses of corporations and some athlete responses are good and some are same lukewarm like those corporations. And I think that that is a testament to the fact that the world is watching in a particular way and there's a certain type of performance in this moment that is brought out, but also because for some people it is their awakening. And I think that's what we have going on here. I don't think it's different. I don't, I don't think it's new. I think perhaps this is a different iteration. Those are great points. I think we want to also acknowledge and take stock of these athletes that have come out and used their platform. Lindsay, you want to give us a little bit of a sense of what's going on in the women's sports community? So, you know, I think the best thing I can do and we can do is just kind of lift up the voices. Um, you know, we we just heard from Kelsey Bone and what she um, was saying in 2016 and in 2018. And once again, we have a lot of Black female athletes who are leading the way here. Uh, Natasha Cloud had a phenomenal piece on the Players' Tribune. She is a point guard for the Washington Mystics. Um, I've covered her extensively over the past four years. She's one of the best athletes to cover and to watch and to talk with. But I wanted to read a little bit about her piece in the Players' Tribune, which is focused around white silence. So she says, but you know what crushes me most of all? It's how the systems of power in this country are built so strong and with such precedence that in order for white supremacy to flourish, 
People don't even have to actively be about white supremacy. They don't have to carry the burden of being openly racist or waste their energy on being loudly oppressive. All they have to do is be silent. She goes on to say how much it meant to her to see Elena Deladon, her teammate in the um, WNBA's MVP last year, post about the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter on Instagram. She said, even that one post on its own, it just took a little bit of the weight off of my shoulders. It made me feel just a little less powerless in the world. It also laid down the gauntlet, I think, for other athletes. And if it didn't, then I hope this article does. Because there's no new information to wait for. There's no other side to hear from. There's no safe space, no neutral territory to chill in and sit these issues out. Athletes, if you're reading this, know that we see you. I'll repeat that. We see you. I love y'all. And like I said, I'm so proud to be one of y'all. But you're being judged the same as everyone else. And if you're silent, you're part of the problem. If you're silent, I don't fuck with you, period, because I'm just out here trying to stay alive and your knee is on my neck. Whew. And those are words I need to read on a daily basis and hear um, and let soak in. But, you know, she wasn't the only one to deliver strong messages. Um, we've seen teams and, um, you know, we've seen it come from a lot of different spaces. Individual players, Soroya Tinker, who was just uh, drafted into the National Women's Hockey League, one of the few black players in the National Women's Hockey League. She reached out and she gave a bunch of resources to her followers, anti-racism resources. Um, she shouldn't have to do that education. Um, but, you know, then she followed that up by posting a thread about a statement about her experience with racism in the um, hockey community. And she said that because some of her former teammates lack the understanding of the African-American community and white supremacy, and they often fail to recognize that the ideology underlying racist practices often include the, the idea that humans can be subdivided into distinct groups that are different due to their social behavior and their capacities, as well as the idea that they can be ranked as inferior or superior. In this case, I am and always will be inferior to my white teammates. So. I thought it was empowering to see this young player come out and address her teammates and her community so explicitly. It was good to see the National Women's Hockey League Players Association sharing her statement and lifting up those resources and speaking in solidarity. We saw we saw the players associations for the National Women's Soccer League and the um, WNBA speak out as well. And we have seen some coaches speak out better than others. I thought Brianna Turner, former Notre Dame player and current member of the Phoenix Mercury, um, she's in her second year in the WNBA. Uh, she's a must follow for all of this. And she said, recruits deciding what schools they want to attend, please be vigilant right now. See what coaches are speaking out now and what coaches aren't. Think about if you would feel comfortable speaking about the current issues with your coach. And I think I've seen a lot of athletes putting the onus on coaches to establish a friendly environment. You've seen Dawn Staley out at protest this week. And this same week she landed 
two high profile recruits. Of course, those recruits had been in the work a long time, but I think it goes to show that this generation is, is, is looking at leadership in a, a, you know, they're holding leadership accountable in a different way. And that's empowering. I finally want to just finish. There's a billion more examples I could lift up, but I want to share the word, the statement that was just released from the UConn women's basketball players from all of them. It said, I'm trying not to read all of it, but it says, we are nauseated by the social injustice and police brutality that is reoccurring towards the Black community. Yes, we kneel during the national anthem. Yes, we are rioting. And yes, we are protesting because we are tired of innocent Black lives dying at the hands of police officers who do not care about our humanity. For those who are not Black, silence is the biggest betrayal right now. The hardest part is watching friends who are not of color not even question what is happening right now. It is time for us to start preaching togetherness, justice, and love amongst one another. We are proud to be a team made up of diverse women who will never stop pushing for the most basic human rights for our people. Standing up fighting for what you you will believe in and bringing attention to these injustices is the only way that it will progress. As a team, we are here. We are listening. We are woke. Black Lives Matter. Jess? Yeah, I'm... There are so many athletes that we could highlight. I do want to mention that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote an amazing op-ed in the LA Times that came out yesterday, which was Saturday. I encourage people to read that. Um, Here in Texas, we've had a lot of response, a lot from football, because football is a big deal. As early as Tuesday, Demarcus Lawrence, an outside linebacker for the Dallas Cowboys, was tweeting about, uh, in all caps, how can we feel safe when those men to protect us are killing us? When will minorities be free to be Americans in America? I really want to spotlight Kenny Stills. He is a wide receiver for the Houston Texans. He has been kneeling for a long time. He was kneeling back uh, when he was a Dolphin. There was a whole brouhaha around the cops in Miami saying they weren't going to provide security anymore because of Kenny and some of his teammates still kneeling. On Wednesday, he tweeted a picture of himself in uniform, in the Texans uniform, kneeling on a sidelines with the words, we must act for you and for all of those where no cameras are present. And then Kenny did a thing yesterday. The NFL released a statement that managed not to mention anything specific about what was going on. It was so vague that they wrote these systemic issues without ever defining what these means. They didn't mention race or racism. Of course, they didn't mention Kaepernick. And Stills responded directly to the NFL's tweet of the statement with, save the bullshit. I mean, we've heard from like J.J. Watt, which is kind of remarkable. There's all these UT football people. I did want to shout out also Cynthia Cooper, the basketball legend on Friday night. She was downtown in Houston live streaming to her Instagram followers, uh, the protests that she was participating in. And then the other thing I was going to mention is that the Houston Chronicle did a sports cover for today on May 31st, and it has an image of George Floyd. And they write this long thing that says, like, imagine if we had embraced Colin Kaepernick's peaceful protest and paid attention to the issue he was trying to address. Imagine we could be working toward change instead of witnessing the chaos, anger, and violence in our streets. Imagine. Because this was exactly what Kaepernick was protesting, not the anthem, not the flag, not the military, but unchecked police brutality against people of color like George Floyd in our country. Imagine. And then they have another image at the bottom that's Kaepernick kneeling in uniform. And it's a full page. It's very arresting. And it's, I'm glad to see sports media talking about this. I don't, I'm sure some people remember that it was the owner of the Houston, Texas, Bob McNair, who's since died, who called, what was it, like the prisoners? He called the NFL players in response to the kneeling Kaepernick, something about we can't let the prisoners take over the prison, something like that. Um, an incredibly racist thing. 
I will say, I sent this to my friend Mobley. He's a musician I've talked about um, before. And he <laughs> pointed out to me, of course, that we is doing a lot of work here for the Houston Chronicle. Uh, they mean white people. They mean themselves, the Houston Chronicles media without saying it. And Mobley said to me last night, he said, obviously, this is way better than the ordinary, but its deficiencies highlight how extreme the situation has to get before even the bare minimum gets done, which is depressing, to put it mildly. So I've just been focusing a lot on what is here in Texas. And I do want to just mention very quickly that here in Austin, there were huge protests yesterday, uh, in part for George Floyd, who is from Houston, by the way, but also for Mike Ramos, who was killed last week, I believe, I think it was about a week ago, by a cop in South Austin. So we have a long history here, not just in Austin, but in Texas in general, around police violence. And um, it's very local. And I want to also mention that these athletes' activism has really started conversations abroad and internationally. So it's 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 been a very fascinating thing and and really exciting to see the ways in which they have an impact beyond the United States because imperialism, capitalism, racism, like these are these are big systems that are not exclusive uh, to the US and it's been a, a couple of US players that have really and not only US players that have really come out for example the Schalke player Weston McKenney who also plays for the US men's national soccer team uh, wore an armband and started a whole conversation in Germany and maybe some of you remember that on this show we chose our own Bundesliga team, and I believe it was Jess and I that got Borussia Mönchengladbach. And so today, their player, Marcus Turam, took a knee after he scored a goal. And just to remind us that like, this is history, embodying history, he is the son of Lilian Turam, who was also a who is an anti-racist activist within um, French football. And and so it's been really important that their work, I think, has sparked these important conversations beyond the United States as well. Shireen, some athletes have been active <laughs> in the wrong ways. Do you, do you want to just discuss that for a little bit? Yes, this part of the segment is called <laughs> What Not to Do. I think that without making light of it, there's moments that you just need to, I've personally, you know, felt the need in addition to absolutely holding space for black rage. People have been commenting in very humorous ways. And I mean, in critiquing where it's required. A couple of those places, not to point people out, but to specifically point people out, Darren Ravel noted sports commentator he literally only commented on the twitter exchange between nike and adidas because nike had tweeted something then adidas quote tweeted them and then nike quote tweeted them and it's like oh wow racism is over because two of the biggest capital capitalists you know sports <laughs> places have decided to quote tweet each other like that's that's the level of your insight okay next i do want to talk about josh yohe who is a, a hockey writer in Pittsburgh, and I. this was a hat tip from Jashvina Shah. Um, there's a Mario Lemieux statue. Mario Lemieux is the famous uh, Pittsburgh pen and of the team, also of the fame team that did visit the White House. And this statue was defaced. And so this man gets on to talk about how the riots or the 
protests, um, I don't want to call them riots, the uprisings and the action is bad because Marilyn Monroe was a really nice man. He was a nice man. And he did a lot for, for, for the Pens and the city of Pittsburgh. Okay, I don't know how tongue deaf Josh is, but I'm getting a pretty clear indication. Like the system around us is completely broken. People are angry, but this man's worried about a statue. And let me tell you, the statue will be fine. It will be fine. Like it's just, it's staggering to me. And also just on that point, the Twitter account Decolonize Hockey actually put a thread out because they're just amazing about how problematic Lumia actually is. And I say that to mean he's got a history of rape apologia and just in action in ways. So he's a nice man who does great things for white people. So sorry, that's also, that ain't it. I know that Brenda just quickly touched upon international, but I would like to bring attention to Serbian footballer Sasha Bayan, um, who had a very interesting tweet. He was talking about how racism, you know, is a bad thing, but doing that thing, looking at it from a lens of a European. But his comments were really interesting and caught a lot of attention. The comments with the tweet, which is now deleted, but what he actually said was, this is something people, we don't look at color like this in Europe. And I just was like, well, what did this man say? They, they don't have racism in Europe? So like pretty much everybody I know in Europe who's a person of color or a BIPOC was like, what, what, what is he saying? I don't know that Europe. What's this Europe that doesn't have racism? So in my astute articulateness, I just retweeted, replied back with the Bend It Like Beckham photo of Justin Pinky staring. Because that's the only thing I could think to say. But, but that's pretty much the commentary. Like, what are you saying? You're like, it just makes no sense. And this also points to what needs to be done and how removed white privileged athletes are from this. That you can look out from Europe, which is literally the birthplace of colonialism. It's literally the birthplace of this type of brutality. You're saying there's no racism? Like, who do you hang with? So... In addition to that, which gave me moments of like, literally, what? Wanted to talk a little bit closer to home. We've seen and we know that we look to, and I specifically, this has been a place of progress for me, looking to the U.S. Women's National Team for really intense, beautiful things like Crystal Dunn's Instagram. She's been a warrior. She's talked about Black is Beautiful. She's made incredibly clear, articulate comments and just been very firm. And, you know, we look to her to lead. Um, Sydney LaRue, actually, um, Dwyer shared this beautiful art by Shireen Dharma, who is a Palestinian um, activist and artist who has created um, images dedicated to George Floyd as well. And she, Sydney LaRue Dwyer shared that. Alex Morgan, Becky Sauerbrunn, you know, Pino has been on her Instagram. Alex Morgan and Becky Sauerbrunn have had two very specific tweets. Becky Sauerbrunn's was about where, what kind of action to do and where you can do to do action. Because there are honestly some people that don't know what to do. This is unfortunately new for them, but people have their journeys. So she's pointing them to the right direction. You know, we've seen Winston McKinney. We've seen Josie Altador. Okay, but let's stop for a second. Let's talk about Carly Lloyd. Let's talk about Carly Lloyd, who tweeted out some nonsense, okay? She tweeted out some nonsense, and this is really not what to do. She tweeted out that photo, the photo stock photo of everyone's different pigmented colored hands, holding hands, saying we're all humanity. No, Carly, 
It's not time for the hand-holding. It's not time for that. You can't fucking say Black Lives Matter. You don't got to say anything. And your silence is enough. So then Carly got upset because Carly's white fragility wouldn't allow her to take any type of criticism, right? So Carly gets mad and Carly then tweets out, well, I'm not racist. I'm not a racist. But she does the checklist of, do I have Black? I have Black friends. I'm not racist. I'm not privileged. I can't think of anyone on the athlete scale that is as privileged as you are. You literally tweeted out getting a free Volvo like two months ago in the beginning of the pandemic. So yeah, let's just, let's just relax with that. Anyway, I replied to her and just said, yeah, no. And I was promptly blocked. So if this is the type of engagement and my comment was literally, yeah, common, no. And apparently it's a a prestigious club to be part of the, I've been blocked by Carly Lloyd club. And I think we might do t-shirts because she has the, for those of you that know her, she was critical as well of Pino when Pino took a knee and not supportive. So this is no surprise to a lot of us. But I didn't realize the club and somebody from the Riveters, the Rose City Riveters, I love you, Portland, was like most of our supporters club has been blocked by Carly Lloyd as well. So that's just literally not what to do. So if you want prime examples, go look at what they've done. If you can find them, because they've since deleted a lot of these tweets, but screenshots are forever, bitches. It's the only time Carly's blocked. Um. <laughs> and also somebody said, somebody said, oh, she'll fit right in when she does NFL her NFL kickers. career. She's a perfect NFL kicker. <laughs> oh Mira? Yeah. She's perfect. Perfect for that. Yeah, what a mess she is. What a she mess. Said, oh. She literally, if, if if homegirl had a bingo card, if you had a bingo card for like all of the things white people say when they're called out, like it's actually quite a mastery like of to use such little characters to check off so many boxes. Anyways, I just wanted to say if you're listening to this and you are a white person or a non-black person and you're uncomfortable talking about race, sit in that uncomfort, sit in that discomfort. Please do not use not knowing what to say as an excuse for your silence. Silence is complicity. You cannot be silently anti-racist. You have to be actively and vocally anti-racist. And now let me tell you, there is a lot of people who take their care and their time and their labor to offer up education that have a patience that have book recommendations and podcast recommendations, Google it. There's lists, there's posts circulating on Instagram, there's there's threads on Twitter. Literally anywhere you want, you can go and do this. Also know that there's a lot of us who are tired of educating. So don't put that burden on the Black people in your life or that you think you're friends with or whatever. Like, don't do that. But when people are inviting you to educate yourself, please take those invitations. Google is your friend. Libraries are free and wonderful places. If you don't feel comfortable going to a protest, donate. Donate your money. Use your platforms. That where you're sending your money. Don't give it to Sean King. Thanks. Please don't. Google that for years of exposés. But I feel too often what happens is people say, I feel deeply about this. I don't, I'm scared. I don't know what to say. And I, I get that, but that, that can't be your excuse any longer. You have to just try 
And there'll be moments where you're called out. And instead of retreating back or getting defensive or getting mad, you lean into the discomfort and you keep going. That is literally the only way to do this work. And this is me inviting you all to do that work. My patience is worn out, so don't come to me for much. (laughs) But please, do the work. Jessica? Yeah, I did want to mention that I think it's important that we bring uh, COVID back into this discussion. That's something that we have covered extensively over the last few months. There's something here that we should touch on about the connection between these COVID respiratory deaths that are impacting Black and Brown communities in a much higher rate than white communities in the U.S. The fact that Floyd was choked, that that police officer had his knee on that man's neck, and that the response of the police to the people protesting that death in this moment is to spray them with poison, tear gas, affecting their respiratory systems. All of that as are outcomes, right, of, of state neglect and of violence. There's an amazing op-ed at the New York Times by Kianga Yamada Taylor. It's called, Of Course There Are Protests, The State Is Failing Black People. And in it, Taylor writes, quote, the fact that Mr. Floyd was even arrested, let alone killed for the inconsequential quote, crime of forgery amid a pandemic that has taken the life out of one out of every 2,000 African-Americans is a chilling affirmation that Black lives still do not matter in the United States. This spring season has bloomed at least 23,000 COVID-19-related deaths in Black America. The coronavirus has scythed its way through Black communities, highlighting and accelerating the ingrained social inequities that have made African-Americans the most vulnerable to the disease. As mostly white public officials try to get things back to normal as fast as possible, and I think I should, I just want to pause and say that that's a lot of sports owners and people who control these leagues and all of that that falls under that right. As mostly white public officials try to get things back to normal as fast as possible, the discussions about the pandemic's devastating consequences to Black people melt into the background. Consequences which become accepted as a new normal we will have to live or die with. If there were ever questions about whether poor and working class African-Americans were disposable, there can be none now. It's clear that state violence is not solely the preserve of the police. Amira? Yeah, the COVID point is so important because it's the layering of atrocities right now. They're using tear gas on protesters in the middle of a pandemic. That's a respiratory pandemic. It's terrifying, quite honestly to see. And I, I want to shout out people like Carl Anthony Towns, who lost his mother to COVID and is still on the front lines. And I just wanted to invite all of us to think about you know this beyond sports, to think about the world we inhabit, especially as we watch the, the, the basic-ass discourse around the uprisings that are currently taking place in many parts of this country. We are on a podcast with the name Burn It All Down. We call you flamethrowers, and we talk about that metaphorically, about giving rise to, laying rise to a system built on inequities. Don't look away from the actual fire. When people are talking about this and say, well, I could support this kind of protester. I was fine with Kat, but I'm uncomfortable because the CVS is on fire. Property, 
(laughs) capitalism, these places will never be more important than lives. Obviously, you'll see a lot of memes with quotes from Martin Luther King going around because that's like a thing that happens. And they are pulling out, at least when he says riot, a riot is the language of the unheard. If you read that entire text, one of he said one of the things he says is what has America failed to hear? And he talks about the widening income gap, that the promises of freedom and justice have not been mount. He says it has failed to hear that large segments of the white society are more concentrated about tranquility and status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. In a real sense, our nation's summers of riot are caused by our nation's winter of delay. And I think that those words are so powerful and they resonate. And there's many others that we can look to (laughs) that have been said time and time again. Toni Morrison said, people who keep saying, oh, the riots, what struck me the most about those who rioted was how long they waited. The restraint, not the spontaneity, the restraint. They waited for justice and it didn't come. In 1968, as riots uprisings and rebellions took across the country, 68 and 69, they released the Kerner Report to talk about the origins of them. That report, released more than 50 years ago, could be read today and still apply. That report says, hey, sanitation, jobs, hunger, they are hungry in Newark. They are hungry in L.A., We can say they're hungry in Minneapolis. So yes, things are on fire. Don't turn away from that. When we say burn it all down, and you can hear that with comfort, don't find discomfort when things are actually being burned the fuck down. It shouldn't take that to take notice, but here the hell we are. So believe me when I say this with all sincerity, burn it down. Burn it all down. So yeah, I invite you to to sit in that discomfort, to, to stare at that fire, to not turn away. It's very hard to deal with this discourse, some of it that I see going around. Um, don't be mad at looting when we're occupying stolen land. Don't get mad at, at stealing. And, and this is also an assault on capital. And the banks during COVID have gotten richer. That is stealing. The rich continue to stock that up on the backs of of many of us and, and really bearing the brunt of that is black and brown communities. So so what if the CVS is burning? Oh no, people are gonna miss their six dollars an hour with terrible health care. In its place, a better society needs to be built. Don't turn away from rebellions and and turn away from uprisings when this country was predicated on one. Don't, in a month, lean into the myth of America by celebrating July 4th and the Founding Fathers like they weren't dumping tea, like they weren't using armed rebellion to create what you call America. If anything, what we're seeing is as American as apple pie. And unfortunately, so is white supremacy. And I think a lot about the words, Honey for a poem or a piece in Medium this week that ties together the discussion we're just having about COVID with this. And he calls it, this is our grand reopening, same as it ever was. 
and still here is the same America, a country so eager to return to normal, howling with grief and soaked in blood. I'm hoping that this is a moment that we can push the boundaries of what is normal, that we can break from the cycle or find slivers of moments to insist in a better world. But that requires us to not look away. We say burn it all down, metaphorically, but it's inspiring to watch that conviction take to the streets. Don't turn away. Stare into the flames. Which is a good transition to the part of the show where we take everything that has sucked this week in sports and put it on a flaming burn pile. Shireen, you want to get that started? (laughs) Yes, please. So I have been complaining about Phil Neville since Phil Neville became a thing. I would just like to say that Phil Neville, it had been reported that Phil Neville would be on his way out of coaching the English national women's team. But Phil fucking Neville just can't stop. In an interview, he stated that he felt like coaching the women's, the English women's national team, undoubtedly and arguably one of the top five teams in the world, said that the three-year, his job coaching was a three-year, quote-unquote, stepping stone to club football. So a national women's team, a very highly ranked team, is what Phil thinks is just en route to the real prize, which is men's football. Um, No, Phil. Sit down, Phil. No one likes you, Phil. So I'm going to take, and like I've been waiting a long time to be able to like metaphorically burn Phil Neville. I think he's a terrible coach. He was brilliantly outcoached by Jill Ellis, and it brought me a lot of joy. I want, I, I love Ellen White a lot. I have problems with the structural racism of that team. I really like Ellen White as a player. And I, you know, ultimately I want to see women's football do well. I want to see women's football thrive and I want to see it happen without Phil Neville. So I'm going to take Phil and his little stepping stones and his comments about stepping stones. And I want to throw it all into the burn pile happily because Phil, that's where you belong. Burn. Burn. Jessica. So I know that there is racism in hockey because I'm friends with Shreen. And I also listen to this podcast. We have covered it a lot. I encourage you to go through our archives, especially our interviews, to see who we've interviewed on this. Mainly, Shireen has interviewed on this. So you might remember in early April in episode 153, when Shireen burned Rangers prospect Keandre Miller being subjected to racist abuse during a Q&A on Zoom. She noted in that burn that it took the Rangers three hours to tweet in response. Let me quote Shireen here. Three hours? I'm sorry, Rangers, not a whole lot of hockey happening right now. What the fuck were you doing for that long? So I'll circle back to this. I'll circle back to this. On May 19th, former NHLer Akeem Aliou published a piece at the Players' Tribune titled Hockey is Not for Everyone. In the piece, Aliou writes about the intense racist hazing and violence he experienced at the age of 16 on the OHL's Windsor Spitfires. He writes about the isolation he felt all the time and especially so after his coach, Bill Peters, used the N-word in front of the entire team. He writes about how it made him feel like nothing, stripped of his his humanity, about how often he felt that way while playing. 
He writes, quote, the NHL must be better, pure and simple. So many in hockey believe the game to be a home for all, but in reality, there are plenty of us who know that's not the case. It's never been like that. There was a lot of silence from players, especially white players, in the wake of Aliou's piece. And this is all to come around to my actual burn. This last week, Tony D'Angelo, who I had never heard of before, but now I know who he is, <laughs> is a player for the NHL's Rangers, those same New York Rangers. Uh, he announced his new podcast that has the mocking title, Watch Your Tone. I feel like that's such a giveaway. His teammate, Brendan Lemieux, responded tweeting, quote, this podcast is going to push the politically correct boundaries, he even capitalized politically correct, uh, boundaries that surround current NHL players, and I can't wait. This is the content fans have been waiting for. (laughs) To be clear, there's no politically correct boundary around NHL players, and you can find this kind of shit content in plenty of places. Lots of aggrieved racist white men have a mic in sports media and are happy to use it. But now to circle back to where we began, the New York Rangers pretty damn quickly retweeted D'Angelo's announcement about his podcast. People weren't pleased. The team ended up unretweeting it. In response to media inquiries, the Rangers said they have nothing to do with the podcast. Lemieux is not actually a part of it either. And D'Angelo will not be covering politics on the show. Sure. I'm sure politics won't be covered. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. But the name of the podcast gives away the game, and Lemieux, giddy in his response to D'Angelo, made the clear point, or made the point clear, that this is the same team that Stream burned in early April for its failure to handle racism quickly is such a huge red flag in and of itself, and it makes sense that people are genuinely concerned about the possibility of garbage content coming from this NHL player on his new podcast, so I want to burn that. Burn. 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 My burn is short and unsweet. This week, the women's section of the Bundesliga, uh, the Frauen, uh, which we've talked a lot about, is back in action. But just three days before uh, play resumed, major clubs, including Baron, were still looking for outlets to uh, televise and broadcast the game. So... Bundesliga has gone out of its way to, you know, pat itself on the back and declare how they've done this wonderful thing for women's football. And it's true that they had a relief fund and they did not cancel outright, as did EPL, La Liga, um, and, you know, all over the rest of the world. So whatever. But that's a really low bar. And the fact that these women are now players and activists, and now they get to be media package specialists. That's amazing. Thanks for giving them another job. So there were actually players that were pleading with people like, hey, if you're interested in broadcasting our game, get in touch with us. You know, what in the actual fuck? I mean, we're talking about uh, clubs that are associated with UEFA. This is like billions of dollars. I I can't even with it. So I want to burn the fact that that they're unwilling to go out and do the whole deal for these athletes. It's always partial and always forcing them to do more work. So burn. 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 Mira? Yeah, I want to burn Brown University's decision. Uh, So basically, Brown University announced that they were going to be cutting 11 of its varsity sports and transitioning them into uh, club sports. They say this has nothing to do with cuts made due to COVID. They released a statement 
saying, quote unquote, this is for excellence. They literally called it Excellence in Brown University's Athletics Initiative. This was done by President Christina Paxson and Athletic Director Jack Hayes. They said basically this was about, quote unquote, diversity, inclusion, and competitiveness. In particular, what I want to zoom on in this decision is their their choice to cut the men's track and field program. And I want to tell you why. The men's track and field program and the women's track and field program at Brown University are integrated programs. They have the same coaches. They are one team. They are also the most diverse team on campus. Notable alums from this program include David Diggs of Hamilton fame and also my best friend, Thelma Hughes, um, who I've talked about on the show before. This is the space that became an incubator for many black and brown athletes on campus. And detaching the men's team from the women's team and a reason why they did it is because it would allow them a lot of of space to maneuver under Title IX because a few years ago they were found that the women were way underrepresented. Um, Men's track and field is a large program, and that's one of the reasons it was aimed at cuts. This would be off atrocious on its own, but it's particularly frustrating when you realize that while they're downgrading these 11 sports to club status, they are creating two sports and elevating them to varsity level. One of those sports in particular is sailing. I'm sure you can guess, I don't have to tell you, that sailing is not quite as diverse. And by not quite, I mean all white. In the argument that they made about this, they said, well, we're, we're close to bodies of water and we're historically competitive in sailing. So we really want to take advantage of our quote unquote natural advantages and history of success if we can make the right investments. Homie, if you cared about competitive advantage in your football team that has, that went one in 20 over the last three seasons <laughs> would not have made the cut. First of all. If you cared about diversity and inclusion, you would have not cut the most diverse team on campus in favor of a sailing club that's now a varsity sport at your school. Second of all. Third of all, <laughs> you have a, a $4.2 billion endowment. Your board of governors, like the ones at Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and all of these places, with their MBAs, who are protecting the equity that you have in the endowment and making cuts that are felt at the lowest level. You did this after the data sign. There's 150 athletes <laughs> that learned overnight that they don't have a varsity sport that comes with scholarships. It's awful in, for many reasons. My best friend, I asked her about this, said, the way I got to Brown was through track. And for all of us there, it gave us a space to feel like we could reclaim space in the university. That's what Brown's track and field program provided for them. And so it being cut, sailing being uplifted, you know, especially if you're talking about competitiveness, they've had Olympians, they have All-Americans, they have national qualifiers. Stop using this language and dressing it up to say that this is anything other than what it is, a way to cut corners, to cut money, to, to amplify sports that already need country club passes and your daddy's paycheck. It's dumb. It's, I'm over it. It's disgusting. Burn it all down. Lindsay. Uh, Yeah, quickly, I just want to put all baseball owners on the burn pile. Um, (laughs) I'm sure there's 
I'm, yeah, I'm sure there are some good ones. No, I'm not. Um, yeah, so this past week, we've seen baseball executives attempting to cut player salaries, in some cases as much as like 70%, and make players agree to just egregious levels of pay cuts without ever opening their own books and showing exactly what is happening to their money and where it is going and being transparent about that with the players. So that is going on on one side as these billionaire baseball owners, uh, you know, attempt to figure out what to do with the coronavirus. And on the other hand, you have these executives um, laying off and cutting hundreds of minor league players who were making Four hundred dollars a week, which is literal pennies to these men, literal pennies to these men in charge. And I just think, look, like Major League Baseball owners, your asses are showing. You don't care about taking care of the players who are making you all of your money, nor do you care about the future of the sport because you're sitting there cutting out the development. Like for a support for a sport to thrive, it needs to be, you know, taken care of at the minor leagues as well. So it is clear. Um, it's been clear, but it is especially vivid now that um, the baseball owners care about nothing but money and power, and they don't give a shit about these players, no matter how how high up on the food chain or how low on the food chain they are. So just burn, 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 burn. burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some of the badass women of the week. Honorable mentions go to Karina LeBlanc, who won a Webby Award for her work on the Women's World Cup 2019 in France. That was for her show with Fox Soccer with Aaron West and their crew. Also, 20-year-old Seychellois swimmer Felicity Passon in 2019 became the first swimmer to win gold at an African Games. In February this year, Felicity achieved a remarkable feat when she qualified for the Olympic Games, becoming the first woman swimmer to do this. Also, Sonia Bermudez, the Spanish footballer who has been 20 years in Spanish football, seeing it go from amateurism to professionalism, playing for the Spanish national team, and has nine titles with the league. Happy retirement. Can I get a drum roll, please? Okay, not surprisingly, but definitely important, we need to shout out all of the Black women athletes who have been leaders in the fight to end police brutality and racism. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. It's a it's a it's a hard week. It's a hard show. What's good in your world, Lindsay? Oh, I'm so glad I get to go before Amira because I, <laughs> I get to say this. Yeah, what was good <laughs> is how excited Amira got over the damn Peloton bike challenge on ESPN. <laughs> she was live texting me updates like it was the Super Bowl. It was amazing and. <laughs> 
See, I mean, I don't get it at all. I had no clue the thing she was telling me. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. But seeing a friend that joyful and excited for something, it really it brought me a lot of joy. So I was uh, that that had me laughing all day yesterday. She was. <laughs> all up in the like tied up in knots you know i was at the dc protest yesterday um i will go back and i just what what's good is the organizers there who are on the ground and doing the work and who have been and you know i have a lot more thoughts on that but you know this is just i just want to thank right now first and foremost the organizers there are people who've been doing this work for so long. Um, they've built up these communities. They've built up resources. And it's inspiring and empowering. And it motivates me to continue to be better as, um, you know, does this whole conversation. So I'm grateful. That's what's good. Amira. Yeah, um, I was very excited about that. And I couldn't tell if it was because I miss sports or have drink the Kool-Aid and I'm really into Peloton and I decided it was a function of both. It was super fun, low key, like it was, or high key. I was very excited. And it was exciting because so me and Michael watched it together. Don Staley looked like she was not like dying. Michael was like, that's how I look like on the butt. It was so funny, but it was really exciting because it, they put those the same rides on demand on the bike right after. And so you could jump on. And I'm proud to say that my final numbers were higher than Allison Felix and Don Staley. So basically oh you can't tell me anything. I'm an elite athlete. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I was excited about that. And generally that has been such a, a release um, during these last few weeks. Peloton just made a, a new hire um, that I want to shout out. Uh, Dr. Uh, Chelsea Jackson-Roberts. She's the first Black yoga instructor for the company, and she's dope. She's a PhD. She's a Spelmanite. She's an AKA. She brings a heavy dose of Black girl magic to all things yoga. She runs a camp at Spelman for young Black girls to explore their body and art and, and create and social justice. And I really fuck with her. Um, she Her caption was about holding both the joy of being named to this position in the middle of another lynching. And I just um, have found such a uh, release in, in a fitness program that doesn't shy away from the world that they live in. Um, and so that was definitely my what's good um, this week. And it's my birthday yeah. week. So Ooh. that is something that I am looking for I don't I don't know if I'm looking forward to it it is a round number this year it's 32 and I do like round number like not round numbers but I like even numbers so I am um, I am excited about that and this is the last week of homeschooling or whatever the hell it is we've been doing um, so I'm very excited for that and also because I very much feel and I say this with all honesty that we're on the brink of a, a war and I don't want to be in the middle of central PA when that happens. And so we are going on a road trip and I'm, I'm really excited to see family and to get the hell out of here to be, to be with my people. So. Shereen. I just want to, uh, first what's good. I do want to thank all the incredible black people in my life for their work and their continuous loving care, which I end up falling back on a lot. 
I've had a really interesting week. I've been experimenting, and thank you, Jessica, for your constant support with my KitchenAid mixer, um, because everybody in the world was baking. I'm not doing bread, but I'm, yeah, I'm just. I made a no bake Oreo cheesecake, and my daughter Jihad was like, and I like literally debated about it. And in the end of the day, I will go with what she said. I think baked cheesecake is the way to go because it came out very tr- almost trifleish. Like it's it's solid, but like it wasn't the most successful thing. I thought it would be easier, but Shireen is learning. You can't have shortcuts in baking. You can in cooking, which is why I love cooking. Baking is like a thing. And, and then I'm getting, looking at a mirror. It's like baking to me is as complicated as a mirror stat sheets that she keeps sending me for Pal- Peloton. And I don't know what's happening, <laughs> but that's what gets scared when I see statistics. Anyways, on that note, I also had a video call with Amir and Michael. And if you can ever have that joy in your life to see the two of them together and they totally need their own show because they're <laughs> hilarious. Like they're, Michael is just like, he's had it with her and then he's had it with me with her. So it's a lot of fun to video chat both of us. It's like just a lot of fun. So that brought a lot of joy into my week. And my children and I are actively table tennising in a way. And I got like two more paddles. So now we play doubles and it's like, my children are athletes and my one son, Salodin is so missing sports that he ended up trash talking. And I literally was like, calm down, Jordan. Nobody needs that energy in the garage. It's literally table tennis in the garage. You need to calm down, but he's missing that competition from the court. And we're like, okay, okay. Just, you know, it's all right. So baby, that's been really fun. And I did a piece on the Canadian women's national team and it got to be edited by Stephanie Yang. And also just really quick on joy. If you haven't heard the, the segment that Jessica and Amira did on Quidditch, if you think Dr. Miros Davis is smart, listen to Dr. Miros Davis and Jessica talking about Quidditch. Like, I don't know Quidditch. I didn't, I didn't read the Harry Potter books, but I will buy whatever they're selling because that was phenomenal from a historical perspective, from a contextual perspective. I was like, what, what is this? Like, it's fascinating. Also, I had a lot of fun with Meg Linehan and Stephanie Yang doing a hot take on NWSL return. It was a lot of fun. I adore those two women and it was a joy and I'm very grateful to them for jumping on a hot take with me because I know they were high in demand and that day was really chaotic. So there's been a lot. I'm trying to grab joy where I can. End of the day, don't make no big cheesecake. That's Oreo. That's all I'm going to say. Jessica. Yeah, so some of my what's good is that Shireen voice messaged me about the no-bake Oreo cheesecake, and then while she was messaging me, Jihad was yelling at her about it, so I got to have, I got to hear in the middle of the message the two of them yelling back and forth about what counts as baking, so that was lovely, and then last night my phone rang, and it said Amira Rose Davis on the screen, and I picked it up, and I said hello, and the first thing Amira said was, are you asleep? (laughs) (laughs) and I wasn't it was 9 30 uh but that whole conversation was lovely but just that moment in particular was so good like she was ready to ask me if I was sleeping um (laughs) so did she did she care if you were sleeping I did I deeply cared (laughs) um so that's obviously those things were good. I did want to mention it's it's just a weird time in general, but I do have this book coming out in September that Kavitha Davis and I wrote called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And this week we got our first review. It was from Kirkus and it was a starred review, which is a big Woo-woo. deal industry insider kind of space. The to get a starred review is basically all you can ask for. It's also just a 
short, beautiful review. And it just made the whole process writing a book is really hard. And to have someone you don't know read it and come away with all those kind words, just it was a lovely feeling this week. So that was very nice. Oh, that's so nice to hear all of your good things. Um, my good thing, let's see, friend of the show, Frank Gordidi reminded me of Robin Kelly's series of interviews on Solidarity. Oh, they're so good. Oh, so good. Oh, they're so it, good. One is called Solidarity is Not a Market Exchange. Spoiler alert, it's not your self-care. Okay, like you staying home and like doing your nails and stuff is not solidarity because you feel good. <laughs> it's amazing and complicated and challenging. And it's I just think it's so worth it. I'm, I'm happy you love it too, Amira. That makes me that makes me love it that much more too. And then the other one is Louis the 16th of France. You know, he was a king who was beheaded for the start of the French Revolution. He's Marie Antoinette's husband. His descendant, Prince Jean Count of Paris, tweeted because he was really upset that a statue of his relative had its hand broken off during a protest, I believe in Louisville. And uh, (laughs) this was hilarious. He tweeted out this complaint that protesters had disregarded the mutual history of France and the U.S. <laughs> and France's role in the American Revolution. <laughs> and the responses, I literally was falling off my chair. Just like falling off my chair. I just like go back every time I'm on set and I just like relook at new ones that come in. So I love to see late 18th century historians get in on this. He was so taken down in every which way, but especially the ones who go deep on the historical background because Louis the 16th of course presided over one of the most brutal slave societies uh in Saint-Domingue which is today Haiti ever. Um and it's also good that you just let me talk about this. So thank you very much. That was that was wonderful. That's that's what's good. Go read it. Go read Jean Comte and think what inbreeding does to your brain. <laughs> He's descended from... Okay, all right. Anyway, sometimes the family tree just looks like a pole. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's true. But it's true. There's fruit. so gross. All right. Okay, fine. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We do appreciate your reviews and feedback. Let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. We will also put up on the show notes some organizations that we think uh, deserve support in case you're looking for different ways to reach out and give your help, if you can, to people doing the work around anti-racism and police violence. We do always appreciate our Patreons in particular. We could never do this without you. We appreciate your subscribing, and we would never be able to keep doing this every week. 
We're so grateful for your support. We send our love out to everyone. And I just want to say, burn on and not out.